Okay, let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And this morning we want to look at verse 17. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to open the scriptures together. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us, help us, Heavenly Father, to learn more and more of your will and how we can apply it to our lives. So we just ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, Paul mentions understanding the will of the Lord. And that's what we're going to look at today and next week, Lord willing. And this is a massive subject. There's an awful lot in the Bible about the will of the Lord. And obviously, we can't cover everything the Bible says about God's will, but we're going to divide it into two sections. Today we're going to look at kind of a, an overall, a generic way of looking at God's will. And then next week, Lord willing, we want to look at a more specific and personal way of looking at God's will in the scriptures. Now in Ephesians chapter 5, this expression, understanding the will of the Lord, appears in a specific context. Paul has been telling us how to walk, how to behave as Christians. And walking speaks of our behavior, our lifestyle, our whole manner of life. And so far, Paul has mentioned in these two chapters, the practical part of Ephesians, a worthy walk, a walk that's not like the Gentiles, a walk in love, a walk in light, walking circumspectly, walking not as fools, but as wise. And if we're going to walk that way, it requires that we understand what the will of the Lord is. If we want to walk wisely, we need to know God's will. If we want our walk to be worthy of our high calling in Christ, we need to know God's will. And so our walk and our lifestyle really depends to a certain degree on our understanding, our knowledge, and our understanding of the will of the Lord. This is basic. This is fundamental for a believer to know God's will if we really want to honor him with our lives and please the Lord. So let's first look for a little while at understanding God's sovereign will. And then we're going to look at his moral will. Now, just think of God's sovereign will. God is sovereign. God rules. He's Lord. That's what it means. He's Lord. That means he's sovereign. He is the sovereign Lord, and that's God's essence. He is sovereign over the universe and every tiny little detail in the universe. And as the sovereign Lord overall, God obviously ordains every single event in his universe, large and small, from the events that transpire among the nations to every leaf that falls off every tree and exactly where it falls and how it falls and when it falls. So everything that happens in the world is because of God's sovereign will. He allowed it to happen, and he incorporated it in part of his eternal plan. And let's look back in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, and verse 11. Here Paul says, In whom, in Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him. And now this next expression describes him. It's describing God. God is the one who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. So God works behind the scenes in how many things? All things. And God is working out all things in the universe, large and small, according to the counsel of his will. You know, there are a lot of expressions in the Old Testament where God says, I will. And when God says, I will, that means he's determined that it's going to happen. God said to Abraham, I will make of thee a great nation. 
I will bless thee and make thy name great. It says in Psalm 135, and we looked at this recently in our uh, prayer meeting study. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and earth, in the seas, and in all deep places. Everywhere. God does as he pleases because he is sovereign. And God can do whatever he pleases, whatsoever the Lord pleased. He did. And so whatever happens, in a sense, we can relate this back to the sovereign will of the Lord of all. And turn to Isaiah for a moment. Turn to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. And verse 13. Here the Lord says, Yea, Before the day was, I am he, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? Now, that word let is an old English word that means hinder. God says, I'm going to work, I'm going to do my will, and who in the universe can hinder me from doing it? And the answer is obviously nobody. Man Angels, Satan, nobody can hinder God from doing his will. And look in the same book, Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 10. Here it says, declaring the end from the beginning. God is omniscient. He knows the end from the beginning. And why does he know the end from the beginning? Because he planned it. And from the ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So God is going to accomplish his pleasure, his purpose, his counsel. It shall stand, and nobody can ever hinder it. Nobody. And so when God in his sovereignty wills something to come to pass, it is going to come to pass. And all that does come to pass is part of God's sovereign will. He allowed it to happen. Now, sometimes God's sovereign will is described or called his hidden will, as opposed to his revealed will in the Bible. A great example of that is the life of Joseph. God's hidden will. You know, we might think of this as divine providence working secretly, privately hidden in the background, but always operative in orchestrating events. And that was certainly the case in the life of Joseph. It was God's will for Joseph to find himself in a position in Egypt next to the Pharaoh, the prime minister of Egypt, so that God's will, God's will to preserve his children, the children of Abraham, and fulfill his promises to them in a time of famine. Otherwise, the people to whom God made a promise would have all died of famine, of starvation. But God had a purpose, and he worked behind the scenes, hidden but operating in every detail. And Joseph didn't know why his brothers tried to kill him. Joseph didn't know why his brothers threw him in a pit. Joseph didn't know why his brothers sold him as a slave for a few bucks. Joseph didn't understand why he was falsely accused of rape and thrown into prison. Joseph didn't understand why the chief baker didn't remember him after the good that Joseph did to him. Evil men did evil to Joseph. But God meant it for good. God incorporated the evil will of evil men into God's good pleasure, God's good plan for his people. And so God can incorporate even evil intentions to fulfill his word. And just as Isaiah said of the Lord, I will work and who shall hinder me? Nobody. And we see this also in the book of Esther. And I just learned this morning the longest verse in the Bible is found in the book of Esther. The book of Esther is a great book to read, thinking about God working behind the scenes, working out tiny details 
that we could never have imagined if we were living through it at the time. How wicked Haman sought genocide against the Jews to kill them all, to slaughter them. He had a perfect plan, and it almost seemed airtight until God sovereignly intervened and turned the tables. And God did so so easily without violating the will of anyone. God uses and even orchestrates evil choices of evil men to accomplish his good purpose, his sovereign will. And so when we look at God's sovereign will, it includes what we refer to as his permissive will. Everything that happens in the world, good and evil, is because God permitted it to happen. It's not that circumstances overpowered God and and things got out of control and there was nothing he could do about it. God is sovereign and he's omnipotent and omniscient. He allows things to happen, things that we would never want to happen. Now, it doesn't mean that God approves of those evil things. It doesn't mean that God is pleased with all that happens, but it does mean that God allowed them. God permits calamity. God permits evil in the world. He allowed Adam and Eve to sin. It wasn't what he wanted, but he allowed it to happen. He allowed the Babylonians to invade Jerusalem and to slaughter Jews and destroy his temple. He allowed his own son to be tempted by the devil. He could have intervened and overpowered Satan and not allowed that, but he allowed it. And turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. And him, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up. So notice what Luke tells us here about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Evil men with wicked hands planned, excuse me, to put him to death, and they did. They crucified the Son of God. And God determined that that would happen. God planned that his beloved Son would die, and he even planned the means of it, And he allowed evil men to carry it out, even though their intentions were not good. Their intentions were evil. But God carried out his sovereign will without violating the will of those wicked men who of their own volition chose to nail Jesus to the cross. These men were not coerced by God to crucify the Son of God. It was their own own volition. And God could have intervened and prevented the cross, but it was part of his sovereign plan. Now, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 17, excuse me, Paul says, in a context where he's teaching us how to walk and how to please the Lord, he says, Be understanding what the will of the Lord is. So the will of the Lord that Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand had nothing to do with the sovereign will of God that we were just looking at. That's an entirely different aspect of God's will. The will of God that Paul wanted the believers in Ephesus to understand was God's moral will. You know, God has a sovereign will, but God also has a moral will. And it's impossible for any human being or angel or creature to resist God's sovereign will. But we creatures violate God's moral will all the time. Every time we sin, we violate the moral will of God. Think of the moral will of God. God is not willing that any should perish. That's God's moral will, that all men come to repentance, but not all men will come. 
So unsaved men resist the moral will of God for their lives to be saved. And they say, no, thank you. But you know, even as Christians, don't we also resist the moral will of God? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that we all be, lead holy lives, that our bodies are pure and holy and clean, vessels for the Lord to use. That's God's will. That's his moral will. But it doesn't always happen. Not every believer leads a sanctified life. Some believers are carnal, at least for a while, Thanksgiving is coming up. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and he said, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. What's God's will? What's God's moral will for our lives? That we be thankful people. Are we always thankful? No. Sometimes we resist. And we don't like what we're going through. And we can't get ourselves to say, thank you, Lord, even for the thorns on the rose. We can't get ourselves to be thankful for the trial that we're going through, even though we know ultimately that God means it for good. And sometimes we resist the moral will of God. And every time we do, it's sin. We're doing what God doesn't want us to do. In fact, every command in the Bible that's addressed to us as Christians is God's moral will for us. Whatever the Bible says for us to do, that's an expression of God's moral will for us to do it. In other words, it's teaching us how to walk, how to walk in love, how to walk worthy of our calling, how, how to walk unlike the Gentiles, how to walk circumspectly. Some might call the moral will of God the desire of God's heart. That's a good way of describing it. It's not the God's heart's desire. God's heart's desire is for every man to be saved. He doesn't want anyone to be lost and go to hell. But it happens. And this moral will of God, this desire in God's heart, is exactly the same for every one of us. God has a will for me, a moral will. It's spelled out in the Bible. And the, God's moral will for me is the same as it was for the Apostle Paul, the same as it was for, is for every one of us here today if we're saved. And God's moral will addresses issues of the mind, how we think. We're to have the mind of Christ. It addresses issues of the heart. It addresses our motives. It addresses our deeds, our whole walk, our whole life. And yet, when we read through the New Testament, the vast majority of God's will for our lives doesn't relate so much to what we do. Rather, it relates to what we are or what God wants us to be, the kind of person that we are, how we think, what our motives ought to be, what our intentions ought to be. As he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That's what God wants us to be, holy. It's God's will for us to be sanctified, holy. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what mind is that? It's the mind of Christ. The mind that was willing to humble himself and lay aside the outward display of his glory and become a servant of men and to be willing to be obedient unto his father's will for his life, even to the death of the cross. That was the desire of God's heart for his son. For his son to love his father and to obey his father to the degree that he was willing to die to carry out the will of his father. To die for all mankind. That's the desire of God's heart. And God has a, a desire on his heart for you and for me. And God desires for us to obey all of his commands. 
God's heart is for us to walk in obedience, to walk in the light, to walk worthy of our high calling in Christ. The desire of God's heart is for us to be less like ourselves and more like his beloved son. And as we learn to walk in the will of God more and more as time goes on, we will be becoming more like Christ with the one with whom the Father is well pleased. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. Here Jesus said, Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Now we need to be careful here that doing the will of the Father is not God's plan of salvation. It's God's plan of sanctification, but it's not God's plan of salvation. Doing the will of the Father is not a prerequisite to salvation. It's not the root of our salvation, but it's the fruit. It's the evidence that a person is saved. So here the Lord is saying that the one who does the will of my Father, that's the person who has made it evident by their lifestyle, by their walk, that they will enter in. That's a believer. Doing the will of God, practicing the will of God, walking in the will of God is something that ought to characterize the lives of every one of us as Christians. Jesus also said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of, my, of God, the same is my brother, my sister, and my mother. That's the spiritual family. The lives of believers is to be characterized by doing or practicing God's will. And you know, God has given every human being a will. Seven plus billion people in the world, and they all have wills. And for a lot of the time, those wills are butting heads with each other. If you notice, there's not always peace and tranquility in the world. Because of clashing wills. And sometimes our personal will clashes with the will of God. Even as a believer, we still have that sin nature there. We'll have it till we get to glory. And it doesn't improve over time. Our sin nature is just as vile today as it was the day we got saved. Our character may be changing more like Christ, but the sin nature never changes. And so God has given us all a will and he wants us to use our will to express our love for him. And how do we express our love for God? By doing what he said. By obeying, if you love me, keep my commandments. And what, what does it mean to keep his commandments, but rather to, to practice doing his will? His commandments are his will for our lives. And that's an expression of our love for the Lord. Turn to 1 John Chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2 and verse 17. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth, practiceth the will of God, abideth forever. Saying, John is saying the same thing that Jesus said, that the one who continually, habitually practices the will of God demonstrates that they're a child of God, that they've been born into God's family. So the will of God is something that should characterize our lives on an ongoing basis. It's the, an integral part of our daily walk with God and not just on Sunday mornings. But if we were all honest, we would have to say that sometimes we use our will, the capacity that God gave us, a God-given capacity to choose to love him, and instead we use our will to choose to sin. And we refuse to do God's will, and we, we replace God's will with self-will. 
That's a pretty good definition of what sin really is at its core. Self-will, rejecting God's will. And this is what Paul has been dealing with in the book of Ephesians. And let's turn back there for a minute. Ephesians chapter 5. And look in verse 3. He mentions the sin of fornication and uncleanness and covetousness. That's not God's heart's desire for us. And look also in verse 4. Filthiness, foolish talking, jesting which are not convenient. That's not the desire of God's heart for our lives. They're contrary to the moral will of God. It's sin. It's evil. And yet, that evil resides in our hearts, and we give in to that, and we choose our own will to please self rather than to do God's will and please him. We're behaving contrary to the moral will of God. So while no believer can ever step outside God's sovereign will, we can and do step outside God's moral will. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 5 and verse 17, he wants us to be understanding I want you to understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, this word understanding here, Zodiades defined it as the assembling of individual facts into an organized whole, as collecting the pieces of a puzzle and putting them together. The mind grasps concepts and sees the proper relationship between them. And so here he's defining this word understanding as more than just having pieces of a puzzle. It's not just the individual facts, but it's the discernment to put it all together and make it workable, make it practical. And so this is much like wisdom as opposed to knowledge. It's understanding and discernment that God wants with respect to the will of the Lord. You know, it says in Acts chapter 28, <clears throat> the Lord says, Go unto this people and say, Hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand. Same word as understand as in Ephesians 5. And he's quoting from Isaiah. And Isaiah was saying that his people heard the facts that God said, but they didn't have the capacity to put all those pieces together and have discernment into practicing it. They didn't have the wisdom to reason things out and make sense of all the facts. So they heard, but they didn't really discern. They didn't understand. God wants us to know the facts, but much more important is that we're able to put it all together. So understanding what the will of the Lord is is kind of a two-step process. First, we need to know the facts, and where do we find the facts of God's will? 99.9999999% of God's will is revealed in this book. And so God wants us to know that. Our sanctification is God's will. That's a fact. It's one of many facts. God wants us to be thankful. That's a fact, one of many facts. But yet, as we read through the Bible, there are a lot of things in the Bible that we can discern to be God's will, even though it may not even use that expression, God's will. Every command is a command for us. It's God's will. Husbands, love your wives. That's God's will for husbands. Children, obey your parents. That's God's will for children. Honor the king. That's God's will for citizens of a country. Every command is an expression of God's will for us. And we have many facts in the Bible, tons of facts concerning what God's will is for us. But here Paul says he wants the Ephesian believers to have the discernment or the wisdom to be able to put all those individual pieces together and know how to walk so as to please the Lord. 
You know, if we're going to understand the will of the Lord, and if we're going to walk in it as wise and a worthy walk, then we need to know the facts, yes, concerning the will of the Lord. And that's where a diligent study of God's word comes in. All the facts that God deems necessary for us to know have been revealed and recorded in this book. So let's think now for a minute about understanding the will of the Lord in the objective sense, in the objective word of God in the scriptures. Some refer to the sovereign will of God as his hidden will. Well, here's the revealed will, and it's revealed in the scriptures. And we have hundreds and hundreds of facts that deal with God's will for our lives as believers. And obviously, the reason God revealed his will in his book is because he wants us to read it, he wants us to understand it, he wants us to know what it says, and he wants us to have the wisdom to put it into practice. You know, there are some things that are hard to understand in the Bible. But when it comes to these revealed facts about God's will, they're pretty simple. They're not very complicated. Thou shalt and thou shalt not. There's no debate over that, hopefully. Even a little child understands no or don't. Don't walk like the Gentiles. Do walk in wisdom. Do walk in light. Do walk in love. And so in the scriptures, we read on virtually every page something about God's moral will, the desire of God's heart for us. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. And those things that are written are God's will for us, written out for us to easily read and see. The psalmist quoted Messiah, or spoke of Messiah in Psalm 40, and he said, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Thy law is within my heart. Now notice the connection between God's word, God's law. It was in his heart, and therefore he delighted to do God's will. There is a connection between God's will and God's word. And when God's word is in our hearts and we really delight in God's word, we love God's word, then we are going to delight in doing God's will. There's a connection there. God's word is the written expression of God's will for us. And if we delight in one, we'll delight in the other. Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. Now, by meat, he meant his food. It's what nourished him. Just like physical food nourishes our body, it strengthens us, it keeps us going. So, too, the will of God and God's word is like food for our soul. It keeps us going. It keeps us strong so that we're able to practice the will of the Lord and to do the will of him that sent us. And so we need to know what God's word said. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Here's a passage we're all familiar with. In Romans chapter 12, in verse 2, Paul says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So here Paul describes the good and perfect, acceptable will of God that's recorded in the scriptures. And we're to prove it, we're to test it. But if we're going to test it, what's the prerequisite here? We need a renewed mind. A renewed mind is a mind that has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And once the Holy Spirit regenerates us and we have a new capacity to know truth and know God and a new heart to love God and to love truth, once our minds and hearts have been regenerated, we have this capacity, this drive that the Holy Spirit can use and on an ongoing basis, we're constantly being renewed in the spirit of our minds. 
But there's something else going on inside each one of us. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, the carnal mind is enmity against God. So there is in us a renewed mind that loves the Lord, that knows God, and hungers and desires more and more truth and more and more God in our lives. And yet there is also that other capacity of the flesh. And when the flesh is in control, we're going to behave as if we had a carnal mind of the unsaved man. No difference. The flesh doesn't improve. And we're going to think in ways that are against God and against God's will. And here we have our will being torn in two opposite directions. And the mind of flesh is always in opposition to God. It cannot be subjected to God, Paul says. But it's the submissive, subjected, subjected mind And that's the only mind that God can use, that God can teach his ways and his will. So the mind is where the battle takes place. The mind and the heart, deep in the inner man, that inner soul, that inner life, that inner self-life. And that's where we're able to prove the will of God, put it to the test. Just like we saw earlier, the engineers that built and had a a bridge constructed, they prove it by putting weights on it to make sure that it's going to hold up. They expect that the weights they put on it, the trucks that drive over it, will do so safely. They're proving, they're practicing. And we do that with God's will. And we'll see more of that in a more personal time away next week, Lord willing. But the renewed mind is able to know God's will. And so as we read through the scriptures, as Christians, we are so well equipped by God. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit in us. Christ lives in us. And so when we read through the scriptures, we are reading God's mind and heart, the desire of God's heart for my life and for your life. And God's Holy Spirit can make that so personal. And God can cause a passage or a principle or a command to just stick right out in the page and speak to my heart. This is God's will. The renewed mind under the control of the Holy Spirit will love that. Will love to be corrected. Will love to hear more of God's will for our lives. And will know it and understand it in a deeper way. And once the renewed mind understands God's will for his or her life, there's no debate. There's no discussion for alternatives. I don't like that. Do you have a second choice? There's no alternative but a complete, absolute surrender to the will, mind, and heart of God. Obedience to his will. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. Here Paul was praying without ceasing for them, and here's what they were praying for. Since the day we heard it, Do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Paul wanted the believers in Ephesus to understand the will of God. Here, Paul writes to the Colossians something very similar. He wants them to have a spiritual understanding and he wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now, this word filled is the same word that we're going to see in the next verse in in our study in Ephesians. And it's the same word that's used of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that we have 10%, 20%, and as time goes on, we get filled up until we have 100%. Either the Holy Spirit is in control of us at any given moment, or the flesh is in control of us at any given moment. It's either or. Either one master is ruling 
not two at a time. And so to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be under the complete control of the Holy Spirit. Now notice what he says to the Colossians. He wants them to be under the complete control of God's will for your life. Wow. Controlled by God's will to such a degree that it moves us, it dominates our thinking. It controls our choices. It's what's on our minds and hearts. And here Paul is praying in Colossians 1.9 that the believers in Colossae would be controlled by the knowledge of God's will. A deep knowledge. Not controlled by feelings that come and go. Not controlled by circumstances, good or bad. Not controlled by fashions or fads or pressure from others or experiences in life. But controlled by a knowledge, a deep knowledge of the will of God for my life. How to walk and to please the Lord. And that's vital. Hosea said, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Not knowing the will of God can be deadly. We can get led astray by false teachers. We could be hoodwinked by philosophers. And we can easily replace doing the will of the Lord with doing our own will. For our own pleasure. Instead of seeking to please the Lord. And being filled with the knowledge of his will in Colossians 1.9 involves spiritual wisdom, spiritual understanding. And that's because it's possible to be saved and to learn many facts about God's will and to have all those facts maybe even memorized with a scripture reference as well. And yet not to have the discernment, the wisdom to know how to put it all together so that it's manifested in the way we live and the way we walk. And the whole purpose of discernment and wisdom and knowledge is so that it might affect the way we live, that it might affect our walk, that we would have a fruitful walk, as he says here, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. I turn back to Ephesians, only this time to Ephesians chapter 6. And Paul gives us a very difficult concept to swallow. It might be a bitter pill for some of us. But in Ephesians chapter 6, in verse 6, Paul is telling us, explaining how we are to do the will of our master, the Lord. Now, he's talking here about slaves, real slaves. In the first century, in the Roman Empire, a large percentage of the Roman population were slaves. I've heard different numbers, some up to two-thirds of the population were owned by other people. And the Bible isn't a book on political science. So God took the facts on the earth and he regulated it. And God tells Christian masters how to treat their slaves. And he tells Christian slaves how to treat their masters. And in verse 6 he says, Not with eye service as men pleases, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. So just imagine that you were one of those slaves in the first century, and you got saved, and maybe your master was an evil master. Maybe he wasn't a Christian. Maybe he was wicked. And you discovered from the teachings of the Apostle Paul that this is God's will for my life. I'm sure the slave would have thought, this isn't fair. This isn't the way that it should be. One human being shouldn't own another human being. This is evil. We should rebel. 
But that's not practicing the will of God. God's will is to submit to our circumstances in life, even if they are calamitous, even if it involves suffering, even if it involves a life of never accomplishing anything for yourself. I couldn't imagine living under those circumstances, but here's God's will for them. They were to serve their masters, not with eye service, but as servants of Christ, and they were to do it from the heart, literally the soul. They were to put their whole soul behind serving their master, their earthly master, even if he was wicked, because by serving that wicked master, they weren't really serving men, they were serving Christ. And when they get to heaven, I can't help but think there are extra special rewards in heaven for those who were willing to submit to God's will under such horrific circumstances, and they suffered, they sacrificed to honor God in the worst of circumstances. It kind of puts our troubles in perspective, doesn't it? It takes wisdom and discernment to be able to practice God's will. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to submit to the sovereign will, the things that God has allowed in our lives, maybe horrific circumstances, horrible trials to go through, but yet here they are. It's God's sovereign will, and in the midst of God's sovereign will, God also has a moral will as to how I deal with those circumstances. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Paul was praying for the Colossians that they would have discernment and wisdom and practicing God's will regardless of the circumstances. And here at the end of the book of Hebrews, we have a wonderful prayer about God's will. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20. Now, the God of peace, think of that if you're in the midst of trials and circumstances that are less than favorable. Think of that if you find yourself as a Christian slave somewhere in some society. God is the God of peace, and he brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And here's his prayer, that God would make you perfect in every good work to do his will. That God would make us perfect, and that's the word for being fully equipped, mended, able to function fully in carrying out every good work in the midst of doing God's will, whatever that will might be. Because as we humble ourselves before God, and humble ourselves before the knowledge of his will for our lives, we can be assured that God is working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. As we humble ourselves to our circumstances, as we humble ourselves to God's sovereign will for our lives at this moment, and we're willing to suffer and sacrifice, then we can have the assurance that God himself is working in our heart. that which is pleasing in his sight. God will enable us to do his moral will, to do the desire of God's heart and to please the Lord. And he'll enable us to walk that way. And how does that happen in verse 21? Through Jesus Christ. Through Christ. In and of ourselves, we are totally incapable of handling some of the pressures of life, some of the circumstances of life. But it's only as God is working in us and through us that we are able. And so that in doing God's will, here we're told that the only way, the right way to do God's will is to do it through Jesus Christ. With God working in us. 
In other words, as I seek to do God's will and practice his will, and it might involve suffering and sacrifice, but as I humbly submit and surrender to God's will, it's not I but Christ. It's God working in me. It's not I. I don't have the capacity, but through Christ I can do all things. It's through his indwelling presence and power and the power of the Holy Spirit that we are able to practice God's will, whatever it might be. And when that's the case, we see at the end of verse 21, to whom be glory forever and ever. When we practice God's will, when we come to the end of our resources and we have no strength and we are trusting in God to work in us to enable us to do his will, and God does it, we can know that it's not I but Christ and he gets all the glory because he did all the work. There are many facets to God's will. There's God's sovereign will, God's moral will, and they work together in our lives. And our responsibility, we have no responsibilities concerning God's sovereign will. That will be done. But we do have a responsibility to his moral will. And if we are dedicated to that, God will give us everything we need. He'll work in and through us so that our lives will radiate Christ and bring glory to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your will. We know that your ways are perfect, that your ways are higher than our ways. Your will is perfect, and our will is so riddled with self-will and wrong motives. Lord, help us to reckon ourselves to be dead and just cast ourselves on your feet, that you would work in and through us all throughout life, that we might walk by faith and trust that your perfect will would be accomplished in our lives for your glory. And we'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Never accomplishing anything for yourself. I couldn't imagine living under those circumstances, but here's God's will for them. They were to serve their master.